Welcome to FASD Family Life, the podcast for families by families raising children and youth with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. I am your host, Robbie Seal, FASD educator, advocate, and mom of four kids with FASD. I know the struggle is real, and so is success. I hope that by sharing my experiences, I can help you feel that you're not alone and that there is hope for you and your child with FASD. And in this podcast, we get into the nitty gritty of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, how that prenatal alcohol exposure impacts the developing brain and body of that baby, and how that results in behavioral symptoms that can be so confounding. But once we understand that FASD is a physical disability that manifests in behavioral symptoms, we can change our parenting today. I'm so glad you're here. Stay tuned and listen as we talk to my special guest, Dr. Jared Brown, as we talk about alexithymia. Very interesting topic. Just before we get into the episode, I want to let you know a little bit about the FASD Family Life community. If you're looking for friends who understand, if you want to get to know other parents who are also raising children, youth, young adults with FASD, this is the place for you. This is an online support group slash community where we get to know one another. It's a membership-based community, only $10 a month for the first 50 members. And we meet once a month using Microsoft Teams so that you can meet up with us anywhere. If you're out camping, on holidays, at a women's retreat, running errands, you can pause what you're doing, jump on Microsoft Teams and join the conversation. One Saturday a month, we get together to talk real life, to meet other parents who are going through what we're going through, encourage, brainstorm, and just laugh together. Also an opportunity to dive deeper into the topics of the FASD Family Life podcast and whatever else you want to talk about. Like I said, it's a membership-based community. It's only $10 a month. If you want to know more about the community, send me an email at FASDFamilyLife at gmail.com. And now let's get into the episode as we welcome back our good friend, Dr. Jared Brown. Well, Robbie, thank you so much for having me back. Thank you, everyone, again, for tuning in for today's podcast recording. We're going to take a deep dive into the topic of alexithymia. And I suspect just when I, I give a lot of trainings on this topic and related topics, it's a it's a topic that most people are not familiar with, but after hearing about it, they realize, oh, I see this all the time. So if you're not familiar with the topic of alexithymia, it's not a disorder in and of itself. It's a deficit. Some some of the researchers call it like a personality trait or a multifaceted personality construct. Think of it, I would really think of it too as like a psychological impairment where If someone truly has alexithymia, they're not going to have words for their feelings. It's going to be very difficult for that person to name their emotions, to label emotions, sometimes process emotions. It can really get in the way of like processing emotional stimuli in social situations. I think it's a huge topic in the world of FASD, but there is virtually no research on it specific to FASD. There's a few articles here and there that briefly mention it, but this topic has been studied within the context of so many other disorders, and I'll talk about that today. So think of alexithymia as a personality construct, and I do think 
on some level, we are all prone to deal with alexithymia at some aspect of our life. Even just burnout has been shown to contribute to an increase in alexithymia. So I think if you're a caregiver, this topic has relevance for you too. So being aware of parental burnout. If you're a professional, very relevant too for the work you do, just be aware of professional burnout symptoms. We'll go deep into all that. So emotional unawareness. Person has a hard time just understanding and processing their own emotions. It can contribute to social attachment difficulties. We know people with FASD are much more likely than the general population to be dealing with trauma histories and attachment problems. And part part of the reason why I think alexithymia is probably very prevalent in people with FASD is the very nature, not only the prenatal alcohol exposure, but looking at other types of traumas as well. Alexithymia co-occurs very frequently among people just with extensive trauma histories in general. So think of it too as an issue really associated with interpersonal relating. I do think it's a topic that needs to be considered if you are running a skills group, a social skills group, even friendship making. If someone has true alexithymia, I do think it's going to get in the way of that person probably understanding emotions. You'll probably hear me talk just a little bit about theory of mind today. Keep that in the back of your mind. Theory of mind relates to social perspective taking, understanding the internal mental states of other people. So some, let's say someone has true alexithymia. Identifying feelings might be tricky. So if you're sitting with someone with FASD and you can clearly tell on their face they're in distress and you ask them how they're doing, if they had true alexithymia, they might have a really difficult time saying, I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm depressed. So putting those words to their emotions can be quite tricky. A lot of times it comes out sideways as physical health complaints or somatic complaints. Those are kind of like medically unexplained symptoms. My head hurts, my chest hurts, my stomach hurts, I'm I'm just so tired. Those might be things you might hear. People with alexithymia may also have a limited imagination. This is where it gets tricky because there's really virtual little research on FASD. I wonder if that would apply for an FASD population because I do a lot of work with confabulation and we know people with FASD are very fantasy prone and prone to confabulate. Do they also struggle with an limited imagination? Maybe in some cases. People with true alexithymia often think very concretely. So I do think that relates to abstract reasoning. Robbie, I think we did a abstract reasoning one in the past. So I recommend your viewers maybe taking a look at that. But if people think very, very concretely, they might have a hard time seeing the forest through the trees, seeing the big picture, connecting the dots, cause and effect, planning for the future. And they also might have a very difficult time describing their feelings to their teachers to their therapist, not only to to their friends and family. So be on the lookout for that. Alexithymia has been found to be associated with multiple psychiatric disorders, substance use problems, neurodevelopmental problems, medical, neurological. People with alexithymia 
are more prone to engage in risk-taking behaviors. They might show more maladaptive patterns of being able to express their emotions. So they might have more anger control problems, more problems managing their stress. It can really get in the way of that parent-child relationship. If the parent doesn't understand what's going on here, that can be very stressful, very confusing, and very frustrating to say the least. If someone has alexithymia, they don't know what's going on. The people around them doesn't know what's going on. It's also probably pretty likely that they're going to have some emotional regulation problems, up and down mood swings. Change can be very, very hard. They might have a very poor recognition of memory for emotional words. That's one tip I'll give you. Feeling charts, labeling emotions, teaching what what does sad really mean? What does happy mean? What does joy mean? Those those are kind of abstract concepts on the surface of teaching someone what that means. But then maybe it's finding a short video online too. Okay, this is what it looks like when someone's truly feeling sad or angry or happy. Really teaching these skills early on. Alexithymia has been shown to be higher among people that have had child maltreatment histories, post-traumatic stress disorder diagnoses. If someone is required to be in treatment, mental health treatment, court-ordered treatment, substance use treatment, and if the treatment centers don't take this into account, research kind of leans to the fact that it could be a reason for treatment failure or treatment noncompliance as well. This can also kind of look like empathy-related deficits, or if they have a hard time just kind of connecting to their emotions, processing emotions of other people, it can really look like they lack empathy, when in fact, maybe that's not the case. It's also been associated with people with depression, anxiety, anger control problems, schizophrenia, eating disorders, chronic pain conditions, neurodegenerative disorders. So I want, hopefully people walk away and realize this is not something that's just, I think, related to FASD. It's related to so many different conditions. And why I think, in my own opinion, why it's probably high among people with FASD, obviously I see it in the clients I've worked with, the people I've consulted with. But if it's higher among people with trauma histories, if it's higher among people with neurodevelopmental disorders, if it's higher among people with substance use problems, attachment problems, we know those are very common co-occurring conditions that people with FASD also experience. So kind of recap where we're at. If someone has alexithymia, it can manifest as difficulty with that person really struggling with decoding emotional messages from other people. They're going to have a difficult time recognizing and identifying their feelings and emotions. They're typically going to have a difficult time expressing and communicating their feelings and emotions to other people. They're going to have a difficult time distinguishing between their feelings and their body sensations. So they might have a hard time connecting the dots that I have a headache right now because I'm really mad. I have a stomach ache right now because I'm very confused and worried. But they don't know how to ask for help in some cases or, or name that. So teaching them those skills of being able to ask for help and connecting their physical symptoms to the mental health stuff. Emotional unawareness, 
social attachment problems, and even introspective awareness, like going inward, self-reflection. Those can be really, really, really tricky when we're talking about alexithymia. Ravi, do you have any thoughts or questions? Let's take a quick break. Hey, my name is Oscar, and I'm the host of the Potter Discussion Podcast. The Potter Discussion is the ultimate Harry Potter podcast, discussing everything from Harry Potter, Fantastic Beasts, and the entire Wizarding World fandom. This isn't your everyday Harry Potter podcast, because we have regular, in-depth discussions about obscure and fascinating topics. So if you enjoy in-depth character breakdowns, Harry Potter quizzes, and you're a Harry Potter super fan, this podcast is for you. Search for the Potter Discussion Podcast in your favorite podcast app or click the link to learn more. Yeah, Jared, what makes me think, uh, makes me think of sometimes parents get so frustrated. At they We will say, our kid doesn't have any empathy or our kid doesn't show any remorse. And now I'm thinking, my goodness, maybe this is something of alexithymia. I, I honestly believe if the research is done, which I hope it is, it's probably going to be significantly higher than the general population. Now, I don't know that with 100% certainty, but again, if we look at these other disorders, it really leaned to that effect. What are the causes for this? If we look at the research, just general causes for alexithymia, there could be some genetic factors. What happens if mom or dad or grandma and grandpa are dealing with this? Could there be some intergenerational kinds of transmissions of these things? Physical and psychological disorders, traumatic experiences, depression, anxiety, stress, those are just some of the causes that come up consistently in the literature. But even chronic emotional exhaustion can trigger alexithymia. I honestly think I've probably dealt with this on some level and I've been just chronically exhausted and just something to be aware of. And if you were to go online and like go to Google Scholar and type in alexithymia and burnout, I was shocked to learn how many articles have actually been published that look at just those two topics in and of themselves. Lack of family support comes up in the literature as a possible trigger for alexithymia. And that makes sense to me. So if someone's growing up in a home, it's chaotic, there's abuse, it's inconsistent where parents are on their game one minute, the next minute they're gone for days. Not having support, not having that attachment foundation could be a factor. If you go deep into this literature, and there's literally been hundreds, if not thousands of articles published on alexithymia in general and several books on the topic, Again, little, little mention of FASD. You have to dig deep to find just even a few mentions of it. But it is mentioned out there if you dig deep enough. There's there's a secondary alexithymia that is in the literature that is more of a consequence, the researchers say, as a result of psychological distress. There's an organic type of alexithymia that's more related to brain trauma or a stroke that occurred sometime after childhood. Some of the researchers also call it a primary alexithymia, where it's more of like a developmental phenomenon. If you go deep into this weeds, there's a type 1 alexithymia 
where if someone had that kind of alexithymia, they're going to have more deficits in the area of affective and cognitive kinds of processing speed abilities, things of that nature, and just understanding cognition, emotion, those kind of things. There's a type two alexithymia where that person may show more n- normal emotional awareness, but they may be more prone to struggling with poor emotional expression. So people with more type two might be more prone to like those somatic symptoms, those medically unexplained symptoms. I've gone through hundreds and hundreds of articles on this and I've really paid attention to like, what what are all the studies? What are all the themes out there of where, how alexithymia has been studied? It's been studied within the context of ADHD, adolescent substance misuse, the adverse childhood experiences literature, people with alcohol use disorders, anger control problems, autism, people with borderline personality disorder, people that have had a traumatic brain injury, kids who engage in sexually abusive types of behavior, chronic fatigue syndrome, cyber victimization, disassociation, eating disorders, the list goes on and on. So it's been studied within the context of so many disorders. I'm just confused and shocked as to why researchers haven't studied this too much within the context of FASD. What are the prevalence rates of this in the general population if we look at the research? So general population, around 10 to 13% probably have alexithymia on some level, the general population indicates. If we were to, let's say, look at the literature on autism and alexithymia, that research says as many as 50% of people on the autism spectrum show some level of alexithymia. So when we start getting into clinical populations, neurodevelopmental disorder populations, it's significantly higher. There is some research that looks at alexithymia within the context of an acquired brain injury. Again, acquired brain injury and autism are very different than FASD, but there's a lot of symptom overlap as well. So I think we need to look at that literature to kind of get maybe a general idea of where where things could be going in the future with research on this topic. So if we look at some of the literature on acquired brain injuries and alexithymia, the research does lean to the fact higher levels of alexithymia are reported in that population. And if you go deep into that literature, if someone has a brain injury and is also dealing with co-occurring alexithymia, they may be more prone to engaging in maladaptive coping strategies when under stress. So they might be more likely to turn to drugs or alcohol or stress eating or yelling, screaming, getting into fights. Maybe it's a sudden outburst. Higher levels of impulse control problems have been reported. And it can have a real negative impact on their social emotional behaviors, where I think that really goes back to the theory of mind I mentioned before, where the person struggles with perspective taking, reading cues, give and take in a relationship. If someone has a brain injury, analexithymia, and it goes untreated and unaddressed, higher rates of anxiety have been reported, higher rates of depression, and an increased risk for suicidal thinking and behaviors as well, if you look at the brain injury literature. If you look at the autism literature, 
taking into account many of the things I spoke about before, obviously we know that autism is also a neurodevelopmental disorder, really rooted in social communication deficits, repetitive and restrictive patterns of behavior, very common for people with autism to have sleep problems, digestive health issues, sensory processing issues, to name a few. If you're working with anyone with a neurodevelopmental disorder, FASD, ADHD, autism, intellectual developmental disabilities, I think it would really benefit you to learn about alexithymia. It really helps open the door up to other ideas, possibilities. And it. once I learned this topic, it really helped me better understand why people do the things they do and react the way they do. It helped me have more understanding and curiosity and compassion, to name a few. If you're working with violent offenders, people in the criminal justice system, there's actually been quite a bit of research that points to the fact that alexithymia may be more common among people with extensive violent histories, anger control problems, people with extensive histories of domestic violence. And it's even been studied within the context of sexual offending behaviors. So just keep that in mind as well. Unfortunately, some of this research does lean to the fact, too, that people with true alexithymia may have lower levels of social support. To me, that makes sense because if people around them don't understand what's going on, they're probably going to be burning bridges more and people aren't going to want to hang out with them and be their friend, to be honest with you. Not knowing that this might be rooted in a neurological disorder. It's not them doing this intentionally. So I think if we can really understand this and maybe infuse alexithymia into like social skills groups, social skills training, friendship making programs, different curriculums, I think that would go a long way to help better understand the person. Interestingly, too, this alexithymia has been associated with sedentary behaviors and lifestyles. So this can lead to poor health outcomes where the person may be more likely to not exercise, may be more likely to gain weight, engage in stress-related eating. And there is some research too to support the fact that people with true alexithymia may be more likely to engage in risk-taking behaviors where they don't take into account those risks and how it can hurt themselves or other people. Robbie, any thoughts right now? Anything you want me to clarify for your audience? Yeah, and I'm just going back and thinking about all the conversations I've had with parents over the years as they talk about their children. There's so many overlaps with what we what we know are the deficits of FASD in terms of having, you know, perhaps being volatile, perhaps having um uh, perspective, trouble with perspective taking, um, abstract reasoning deficits, so very concrete thinkers. And now you're saying alexithymia lines up with all of those things. So I'm wondering is, I don't know, maybe this is a wrong-headed question, but is alexithymia part and parcel with FASD? Or is that is it another word that describes some of those traits that we see with so many people with FASD? And why in those adolescent years and early adult years when um, family life can be so challenging and volatile and, and parents can be very disheartened that their kids just don't seem to care about anybody else's feelings and are so very egocentric that we feel as though we're living in their universe. You know, it's, it's, it's at their pleasure that we get to live in their universe kind of a thing. And I just wonder, you know, alexithymia seems to be prevalent. I'm thinking. 
I was a detective, I would be very suspicious. That's what I would say. I would be on the lookout. I would learn as much as possible. But I also truly believe that theory of mind deficits also relate to exactly what you're saying. Theory of mind is such a huge, huge, important topic. And there's a few studies that have looked at theory of mind and alexithymia together. If you are also working with people or experiencing like just chronic medically unexplained physical symptoms that the doctors can never find anything wrong, regardless of the test. Alexithymia has been shown to be much higher in stress-related and stress-sensitive disorders, so higher among people with fibromyalgia, gastrointestinal issues, hypertension, even compulsive behavior, it's been shown to be higher. And I mentioned a little bit about empathy before, but if if someone with alexithymia truly has a difficult time describing their own emotions and then linking their emotions to how other people feel and cause and effect, that's really going to look like that person has a diminished capacity to understand empathy. And in some cases too, alexithymia has been shown to kind of be an accelerant for intense kind of behaviors and arousal issues, up and down mood swings, irritability, those stress management problems. And people, I know at least people with FASD that I've I've worked with and consulted on cases with boredom proneness. Being bored is a real struggle. So I decided, what does the research literature say about alexithymia and boredom? There's absolutely literature to show that alexithymia is higher among people that really, really struggle with managing boredom. I struggle managing boredom from time to time, but I mean, with people that FASD, the, the cases I've seen, it's on steroids. So can something to look out there? for. Can you, can you dive into that a little bit, that boredom? Because that really resonates with me for two of my kids. They just cannot be bored. If they are, um, they got to get something going like right now. And one can figure out something to do and the other can't. And then his anxiety goes through the roof. He, he can't, he can't take on any suggestions um, because he's stuck. I don't know. Help me understand it from a brain perspective. But what it looks like is he's really bored. He's anxious and he's worried because he's bored. Um, friends aren't returning his calls. And so the only thing he wanted to do maybe was to, to play with a friend and that person or all the friends aren't available. And now he's stuck and he doesn't, he can't shift, yep. but now behaviors rise and anxiety rises. So Jared, why don't you talk to us about what you've seen when people have trouble managing boredom? I wonder if we should do a recording just on that at some point, but well, we, yeah, we could, but just give me, I'll give, give me you some nuggets thing. right now yeah. for people that struggle with boredom. That should be a red flag indicator of a self-regulation deficit. The research says, if they can't shift and they get stuck, rumination, look at that literature, look at cognitive flexibility. That's a component under the umbrella of executive function. Cognitive flexibility is like your stick shift in a car. You're going down the road. You need to be flexible and shift and go to the different gears as you speed up and slow down and all that stuff. Looking at cognitive flexibility, self-regulation. I also think Sleep deprivation is fuel on the fire. Learning about fatigue management, that would be very, very helpful. But I also think when people are bored, it's a scary thing. 
Why is that a scary thing? Because emotions start coming up. And for some people, emotions are scary, especially for people that don't know how to label them and name them. So they start feeling all of this discomfort in their body, anxiety, anger, whatever it is. They want that feeling to go away as soon as humanly possible. I do think that goes to the heart of what you're saying. What do we do about that? Some of us eat chocolate. Dark chocolate, 80% or higher, I hear is the way to go. But that's Dark, a Yeah, yeah. Story. No, I'm like milk chocolate bring, and throw some caramel in there too. Like bring it on. But that's where I could see people like, I need to smoke or I need a drink, you know, like something to make these ugly feelings go away. I've been doing a lot of thinking about these feeling things and motions. I've been giving a lot of talks on these topics and helping the person not be afraid of the emotion. The discomfort is like a storm. It's good to pass. Helping them learn distress tolerance. It's okay to feel crappy for a little while. That's not a bad thing. That's maybe a time to self-explore, self-reflect. Lean into the emotion, not run away from it, not to stuff it. Learn how to walk alongside that emotion and to be more curious. Okay, I'm starting to feel anxious here. Getting them to think. That might be some metacognition training. That'd be a great search term for your audience to learn metacognition. That's thinking about thinking, knowing about knowing. It's the ultimate executive function. Executive function, CEO of the brain. Metacognition is the boss of the CEO. It's like the owner of the brain. The CEO runs the company, but they don't own the company. Those are a few things that come to mind. Every one of those topics is a recording in and of itself. It's a huge topic. But those are a few things to consider when we think about boredom. Consider yourself booked for the year. (laughs) (laughs) And then loneliness. I think that's a factor. And the research is very clear too on alexithymia. That alexithymia can increase loneliness, which again, makes sense. But then loneliness and boredom go hand in hand. And a lot of times, I get emails like this all the time from caregivers and professionals, always about media. My child wants more access to the internet, screen time, screen time. It becomes addictive. I think it helps that person combat loneliness and boredom in the short term, but it kicks the can down the road for other problems. So it's a band-aid on something that needs a lot more attention. So be aware of screen time misuse and overuse that can contribute to a host of issues. A very high percentage of people with FASD have insecure attachment problems. I looked at the research on alexithymia and attachment, and I learned that attachment problems and alexithymia go hand in hand. Another reason why I think alexithymia is probably higher among people with FASD, but again, we don't have the data yet. Lacking insight and engaging in maladaptive problem-solving behaviors has also been linked with higher levels of alexithymia. If any of you are working in substance use treatment or maybe have a loved one with a substance use disorder, remember I said earlier the general population around 10, 13% have alexithymia according to the research. Research shows that up to 67% of people with an alcohol use disorder and 50% of people with a substance use disorder have alexithymia. So if you're working with someone with chronic substance use issues, there's a a great chance they probably have some alexithymia. I actually do a lot of work in the area of problem gambling as well. 
and I'm doing a training later this year for an organization on problem gambling and alexithymia. There's actually been about 10 to 15 articles been published just on alexithymia and problem gambling. Big issue. Mobile phone addiction and alexithymia. Research has also been done on that. Alexithymia has been shown to be a predictor of mobile phone addiction severity too, which goes to the heart of screen time misuse and all of those things. So a lot of things to think about. Peer victimization has been a factor in this literature. So Robbie, do you want me to talk a few more interventions or do you have any other thoughts or comments? Um, yeah, I've got lots of thoughts and questions, but I think I want some hope here, Jared. I want to know some of the interventions. You bet. So looking at the research, anything we can do to teach perspective taking. So learning about theory of mind. How, can I just say, how do we do that when somebody's a concrete thinker? How do we teach theory of mind? Thought bubble training. Okay. Making things visual, talking about it, demonstrating it, role-playing it, showing videos to demonstrate it, acting it out, using art, music, drum-based interventions, therapeutic gardening, just getting outside in nature, experiencing things, learning how to experience feelings, learning how not to run from the feelings teaching the person about emotion and expression vocabulary. So modeling, we model what we want them to do. Absolutely, absolutely. Having discussions at the dinner table about feelings, not running from the feelings, not stuffing our emotions. Helping that client achieve more of a self-concept, more of an identity, helping them learn who they are, helping them learn their strengths, as well as their limitations, because I'm a big fan of strengths-based approaches. If you help someone understand their limitations, that's not a weakness at all. That's actually a strength. Teaching them emotional resilience. I know we've talked about resilience in other, other recordings. Promoting resilience has been shown to be an alexithymia-based intervention. How do we promote resilience? Manage stress, eat healthy, get good sleep, be around positive people, teaching peer relations. Maybe it's joining a friendship-making group, joining some sort of support group, hiring a a consultant or an in-home worker who can come in and teach these skills and model these skills, but then practice them out of the home. You don't want to just master the skill within a group or in the home. You want to be able to apply them to the playground, to the classroom, to the bus. So And if you're working with an adult too, it can apply to the job or whatever. Teaching social competence as well. Really promoting social cognition, moral reasoning, empathy, moral decision-making. Those kind of things can be helpful. The research, interestingly too, has shown in this, again, this isn't with people with FASD per se, but just providing general psychoeducation Teaching the family, the caregivers, the impacted individual, and their treatment team just education about what is alexithymia in general has been shown to reduce some level of these symptoms in people. So just creating more awareness of helping them be aware that this even exists and putting a name to what they're seeing, experiencing, and feeling. 
mindfulness-based interventions have been shown to also help improve in some of these things. So mindfulness-based approaches, maybe it's grounding exercises, body-based movements, maybe it's infusing yoga into the mix, increasing social intelligence, emotional intelligence, teaching more social emotional maturity, helping the person learn how to use humor effectively and cooperation skills and turn-taking abilities. These are all essential skills that are really just taught in a good social skills group as well. So those are a few interventions. But if we were to kind of wrap it up and give you some final takeaways, alexithymia is truly associated with poor quality of life. If someone deals with this, it's going to impact their quality of life. And it is a known risk factor for an increase in mental health problems as that person gets older. And it can contribute to lower levels of stress management ability. And it can really get in the way of interpersonal competence. So helping them learn skills to increase their competence in their social realm is going to be very helpful. If someone got married and had alexithymia, the research also points to the fact that it can decrease marital quality. And that makes a lot of sense because if someone has alexithymia and the other partner doesn't and they don't know what's going on, it could look like that person just doesn't care about how they're impacting me. So again, it could look like empathy deficits. It, interesting, it's been found to be more common in men, impacts the general population around 10, 13%. Clinical populations, trauma-based populations, people with neurodevelopmental disorders, it's been shown to be a lot higher. So we really want to be aware when we're working with more special needs populations and people with longer lists of diagnoses, it's probably higher. But we also need to be aware of even if we don't have any disorders or diagnoses, burnout, high levels of stress high levels of trauma, fatigue, uncertainty, worry could be a trigger for this for some people. We're all prone to this on some level, but I think it's kind of more manageable with people that don't maybe probably have like a brain-based impairment or a lifelong disability. It's a huge topic. We've scratched the surface with a lot of these things, but I, I can almost guarantee if, if you are working with people with a neurodevelopmental disorder and many co-occurring issues, they probably deal with some level of alexithymia. And I think if we know that, that helps us shift from frustration to compassion, or perhaps curiosity about, okay, what is alexithymia and how do I get my head around this? And then what are the uh, strategies that we can you know, implement over time to help our loved one? And even by learning to connect with our own emotions and label them, I'm in my 50s, so teaching about emotions was not a high priority in my life growing up. You know, my parents are of the generation who don't talk about feelings. You know, that's the same for all of us. You know, those baby boomers, my parents are baby boomers. They didn't talk about feelings. And the generation before that, even less. It's like, just work hard. Just get after it and work hard and put your nose down and, you know, you'll get through it. Um, and we all grew up with that. So I've had to do some hard work about getting connected with my own, my own emotions and then also grounding myself and also labeling my emotions. And I can see that as I do that, then I have the skills to help my kids as well. Read you loud and clear. I know exactly what you're experiencing. Am I preaching so, to the choir? Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and don't be afraid of emotions. They're normal, but don't always act on the emotion. Well, yeah. Sit with it, process it, 
And the more you do it, the easier it's going to get. And again, model those behaviors, all of those things yeah. are going to be very, very helpful. Yeah. I've talked with you before, Jared, about this, about like, I'm a really great stuffer. I just stuff it all down. But then I get, you know, I get gastritis or ulcers in high school and I get chronic headaches in my twenties and, you know, back pain in my forties and, you know, it's not working for me anymore. I have a wonderful mental health therapist who helps me and helps me process emotions and be okay. And she's taught me to be curious about emotions. I don't have to run from them. I can experience joy and sadness in the same breath, um, you know, and so it's not one or the other. And I think that's really important to say that to, because those of us who are walking this path of caring and loving for somebody with FASD, it's really, really hard. And when we can even just acknowledge it's hard, that gives us space to have our emotions. And then I think we need to really learn and have a good mental health therapist ourselves to guide us and help us through these hard things and help us process our own emotions so that we are healthier mentally, emotionally, and physically for ourselves and for our families. My good friend who's a trauma expert always says it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to ask for help. And even if you're a helping professional, asking for help, that, that's not a sign of weakness. That's a sign of strength. Let's wrap it up right there. That's perfect. As we wrap up the episode, I wonder what you're thinking. Alexithymia, who knew, right? I'm sure you can identify with that within your own children, perhaps yourself. Well, like I always say, when we know better, we can do better. As we see that our kids struggle with perhaps not being able to label their emotions, that's where we can step in and model for them as we label our own emotions, help them identify theirs. You know, when they're overwhelmed, frustrated, and they're about to flip their lid or, you know, blow their top, as we say, that's the moment where you can pause yourself, be really quiet and soft, open your arms as though you're gesturing for a hug and say, I see this is hard for you. What do you need? I promise it works gently, softly available. That just shows your, your kids that you're attuned. It is so supportive. It's, it's trauma informed, attachment informed, brain based informed. It's everything we need to do in a few short words. I see this as hard for you. What do you need? Watch as your kids soften. Maybe they yell. Yeah, this is hard for me. What do you think? Like one of my kids does. But then I can say again, what do you need? I need help. And then we can move forward. We're always moving forward in the direction of our goal. Please remember, you do not have to engage in every argument or fight that you are invited to. You don't need to do that. You get to be the adult in the situation and rise above and always calmly keep moving forward in the direction of your goal. I'm so glad you were able to spend this time with me today. I always learn so much from Dr. Jared Brown. I know you do too. Jared has a good friend of FASD Family Life Podcast. First Friday of every month, I feature an episode with Jared and I love those episodes. I look forward to them. So grateful to Jared for giving us his time. If you're interested in learning even more from Jared Brown, continue listening to FASD Family Life. He'll be back again. Also, check out FASD Hope by my friend, Natalie Vecchione. Dr. Jared Brown is a regular guest there as well. There's also a podcast called Spotlight on FASD, hosted by my friends, Claire Devaney, Glenn and Jessica Rutherford in the UK. They've had a number of really fascinating conversations with Dr. Jared Brown as well. So go ahead and check out those other podcasts by my friends and colleagues in this FASD advocacy world. 
Now, in upcoming weeks, I have some really great podcasts coming up. Keep listening. Of course, Dan Dabosky is coming back for one more conversation. We're going to hear again from CJ and Kat. Those are adults who have FASD, amazing women who are on the adult leadership committee of the FASD Changemakers. I'll be speaking to Dr. Anita Gibbs from New Zealand, talking about her research and also mom life. She's also a mom raising a child with FASD. I'm getting tired. How about you guys? I'm going to be taking time off in the summer, but before then I'm queuing up a bunch of episodes to carry us through that are going to be so fun to listen to. It's called mom talk. And in this series, I will be speaking with a number of different moms who are raising kids with FASD. Some are in the advocacy sphere, some are in podcasting, some are homeschoolers, some are researchers. Everybody's coming together to talk about FASD real life. We're going to get real in the summertime with mom talk. So I know you're going to look forward to that. Hey, if you have any topic suggestions, I've had some recently coming in. I really appreciate that. If you have a topic suggestion or maybe a guest recommendation, email me fasdfamilylife at gmail.com. I always love hearing from you. Thank you for spending your time with me. I know it's precious. And until next time, remember the struggle is real and so is success. I'll speak with you soon.